the feedback process in most companies isn't always the best but at least you get it eventually to some extent you know what your boss and your team members think of you and maybe you also get feedback from some of your peers from time to time but do you know where you stand in the bigger picture have you ever really wondered what your super boss or maybe leadership think of you how do they evaluate you when the time comes for performance reviews and what could you do to get noticed in the right way well today we are really privileged to have with us Troy Stevenson who is the VP and global head of community operations at Uber and he's going to share with us some of his career hacks while also giving us some really good insight into how growth company leaders evaluate talent and potential but before we begin a couple of quick reminders if you like this episode please do rate it five stars and please follow the show so you don't miss out on any of the great guests that we have coming up and if you need a recap after the episode feel free to head over to crazytalk.online to read the full transcript so try thank you so much for making the time to join us today maybe before we get started you could introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your journey so far just to lay some context and then uh, we could get into the meat of the discussion sure thing uh happy to be here and excited for our conversation so a little bit about me uh i lead global community operations at uber and i'll explain a little bit more about what that is in a second but i've been at uber for a little over 5 years which although it might not seem like a long time is probably about half of the history of the company almost so i've been here uh for a lot of change. And uh, before that I did similar stuff at eBay and before that at Charles Schwab and then started my career in management consulting at uh, Boston Consulting Group. And uh, community operations at Uber the, the way to think about it is uh, we are customer operations. So anytime a user of Uber is going to interact with Uber as a company it's going to come through our team and a user could be a rider or a driver or an eater or a merchant in one of our B2B businesses and the types of things we might help with can range from just account related customer support so you're missing an item from your delivery or you've got a question about the fare on one of your trips or your credit card's not working all the way up to the much more serious issues related to safety or risk or major incidents that happen on the platform So we're also responsible for everything around uh, safety education and trying to figure out when something goes wrong, what happened, and taking bad actors off the platform and helping people that, that need help get help. We've got a, a retail network of a few hundred Greenlight hubs where prospective drivers and delivery partners can come in to learn more about what it would be like to earn money with Uber and get their vehicle inspected or get the documentation they need, things like that. And then we do everything related to back office, so uh, menus or document reviews or background checks or, or things like that. So we're we're the largest organization at Uber by headcount. We've got about eight or nine thousand employees around the world, plus tens of thousands more in our partner network. And I've been doing that for the last five and a half years. I'm based in our corporate HQ in San Francisco, and lived in California for about fifteen years, and uh, two kids and a labradoodle. <laughs> labradoodle, well. I guess that's like having a third child. So Troy the the extent and the scope of what you do is just simply amazing. I mean 8 or 9000 people within Uber and like you said tens of thousands of contractors or outsourced employees that's massive. You get to see so many people and therefore develop a very strong perspective on talent and potential. And so your perspective is really good for people in the audience who may be trying to figure out how to get to the next level 
So when you look at a person, how do you decide whether this is a person that you see moving on to bigger and better things? Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's uh, there's both a, a what and a how perspective. So when I think about the what, take a look at, well, like what specific objectives did this person have associated with their function? And ideally, you know, for a lot of positions, we can tie that to a specific metric, whether that's quality or defect reduction or efficiency. And, you know, are, are we able to actually move the needle on, on a metric? And I always encourage people to try to find ways to be a goal owner, you know, be a, be a KPI owner, because there's just nothing more, I think, exciting and impactful. It helps you really get kind of that real-time feedback you need about your performance than to be accountable for changing the direction of a number that, you know, you, you're, you've got most of the, the tools associated with. That can be really helpful to look at. And then also just looking for evidence of like what tangible contributions. So sometimes a metric moves just because you got lucky. There were some tailwinds, uh, you know, competitors and something. And you can get both false positives and false, false negatives if you only look at the number. And so I, I try to get into, well, can we attribute why that number moved the way it moved? And what was this person doing to uh, either make the best of a difficult situation or take advantage of whatever tailwinds to uh, help make it easier? But the what is only part of the story. And I think the more senior you get in an organization, the more important the how becomes. And the how is not just like what you accomplished, but did you achieve it in a way that felt like it was actually making the company a better place? So I look for things like, did this person build a good team? Do people like working for her? Is she a good mentor? Does she bring in good talent? Does she then cross-pollinate that talent to, to other parts of the company is super important. I look at, do they collaborate effectively? So are they able to accomplish things in ways that bring the rest of the company along and make people feel good about it and people trust their intentions and, and, and things like that? Are they actively looking for ways to share insights and help others be successful even when it maybe isn't directly attributable to, to their job? And do I feel like they're representing our brand well? Is their heart in the right place? Do they seem to really uh, care about the company and the mission? And uh, you know, keep that bigger picture in mind. Okay, so try uh, you mentioned a lot of things in there and I wanted to just deep dive into a few points. So I think the first thing that you mentioned was around owning a metric, which makes a lot of sense. Obviously, essentially what you're saying is if you can measure what the person is doing, then you know that makes life a lot easier to evaluate whether they're doing enough or doing it well. However, you did touch upon a very valuable point, which is that metrics also don't always give the full picture. It's you know, statistics, you can make it uh, say any, you know, kind of tell any story that you want. And so one of the things that you're doing is trying to figure out how to separate the action from the way the number has moved. And you did say something like, perhaps the metric did not move as much or as well as one would desire, but that could be because of headwinds. So when you evaluate things like that, would you say that a person who hasn't moved the needle in terms of numbers, but has demonstrated that they you know, did all that could have possibly been done, that person would still be able to get like a good rating or you know, just generally do well versus somebody who's moved the needle, but this just went the wrong way for this person? Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's different KPIs have different degrees of controllability. And, you know, so that I can envision some scenarios where, you know, this person had 100% control over the KPI with no exogenous factors, in which case you're going to hold them pretty accountable for, for moving the number. But I think that's the exception, not the rule. 
you know, in, in the real world, there's lots of forces going on at any, any given time in the economy with competitors, with shifting priorities in the company, things like that. And so to you know, assess performance entirely on which direction the number moved, I think would be unfair in both directions. You might end up kind of over-rewarding people that moved it positively and over-penalizing people that didn't. And so I do think it's important that you understand the story behind how it moved or what caused it, not just uh, the metric itself. Now that becomes a little dangerous though, because then everyone's got a story, right? Every time the, the number moved in the right direction, it was because of the brilliance of the of, of the manager. Every time it moved in the wrong reason, the wrong direction, you've got like a litany of reasons why. So it's, it's I don't want to suggest that it's easy to separate out the, the direction from the story, but I do think as a, as a leader, it's important to uh, invest the time and the bandwidth to make sure you understand, you know, kind of the fuller picture beyond just necessarily which direction a sales number is moving or a satisfaction number is moving. Hmm. Okay, so this is, I think, a good insight for everyone. The other point that you mentioned was around, I think, more sharing. So one was cross-pollination of talent. So, of course, the person has to hire well, which is great. But then many people tend to cling on to their good people so that they continue to do well. And also around sharing insights with the rest of the company, even though that may not be really their KPI. So why is this a factor in how you're evaluating people? Because ultimately, the person has hired a good team, they're keeping the good team and they're doing well. So why make this a factor? Yeah, you know, this was actually one of the more, one of the biggest personal insights I've uh, had at my, my time at Uber. It goes back a, a few years ago and I remember I was, I was getting my annual performance review and I went into it kind of nervous because I'd had these uh, two really strong leaders that were kind of leading big parts of the market and they both moved into the other parts of the company where they were, uh, you know, kind of tangential moves to uh, lead some of our P&L businesses and, and a, a couple other, we, we just had a bit of an, an exodus of talent to other parts of the company. And it's like, wow, I, I bet I'm gonna get uh, dinged a bit here for not being able to kind of hold on to my key people and create an environment where they wanted to stay. And we probably got some leadership gaps now because these folks have moved on. And so I'm sitting down for the review and like the first point on the positives and talents is, for, you know, we, we talked about with the executive leadership and you're really viewed as someone that brings in great talent, develops them, and then coaches them to go on to do really important other jobs at the company. And so like what I thought was gonna be, you know, the biggest you know, the biggest negative on my performance review ended up being one of the, the real positives and a real differentiator. And I, I'd honestly just never thought about that, thought about it that way. Now in retrospect, that's kind of obvious, right? You want your leaders to be good at identifying talent and good at convincing them to come join the company or if it's internal convincing them to come move but then also you want to be viewed as someone that can then help develop and coach and shape and mold people to become even better leaders and when you do that the reward is they're sought out by even bigger jobs and that the company really appreciates when you do that because these then become really seasoned leaders and now you can help again by going out and backfilling those people with, with more great talent and developing a reputation for someone that's good at doing that. So, I mean, uh, it didn't even occur to me that that's the way that a senior executive leadership group would look at how they think about the strengths of executives. But, you know, definitely an eye-opener for me. And so I kind of look at the same thing for my people now, that the mark of a great leader isn't someone that can hold on to the same team forever, but rather that someone that is so good at attracting and developing talent that they're viewed as a feeder. And uh, actually, the region you came from uh, when you, in your time at Uber was viewed at that. You know, uh, Winzu on my team has got a reputation of being able to bring in great people and then go on and do other great things. And so it's been great to see that kind of replicated. Right. Again, I think this is very valuable for somebody to realize, which is, I think most managers, good ones also, 
want to hold on to their best people because you know that's how everybody or rather at least they progress but you're right i mean if especially in fast growing companies where it the war for talent is relatively hard you don't want to be always trying to have everybody hiring from elsewhere if you have good people they should move around and get an opportunity to do different things and also one thing i took away from this is that somebody of your stature at the level at which you are can also be learning new things about how to improve in your own career so that thanks for sharing that illustration so we talked about metrics and what the person can do but there's more to it right i mean we always hear about how you should tell your story manage perceptions don't just be that quiet person sitting in a corner doing something and hoping your work will speak for you so again why is that important like why should the work not just speak for the person especially if there are numbers attached and how does one if it's necessary then how does one actually do it yeah i think it's very important to manage your own brand and don't just assume that everyone's going to notice the the great work that you do right sometimes they will and you know at the end of the day like what's most important is that you're actually doing the great work but if a tree falls in the forest and nobody's there to hear it doesn't make a sound and so I, i do think there's a certain element of making sure that you're doing a good job representing that work now what that doesn't mean is going around and like showing off or trumpeting your great results but rather that you're finding ways to keep your manager and other leaders informed of what's going on in your organization so you know setting up regular operating reviews or check-ins where you get a kind of an organic chance to feature some of the results that you're getting and you're doing it in a way that's balanced so you're not just you know showing that the great stuff but also the things that aren't going as well and what you're doing to uh, to improve them i think it's important that you're looking for opportunities to share things that you learn or accomplish with others that can benefit from them is kind of another soft way to to, to manage your brand. So it's it's not the kind of thing you want to over-index of constantly doing, but I, I do think a trap people can fall in is feeling like talking about what's going well or featuring work that you've done that has made an impact is somehow an inappropriate thing to do or is going to come across as just boasting when actually it's you're adding value by helping create more visibility into things that your your manager and others is going to care about and i think especially in the region that i am in which is asia i think this is more of a of an issue because people tend to be a bit quieter around what they're doing and it's good to hear that leadership does want you to speak up because otherwise frankly how would they know who you are and and what you really do so this is good how would you think what are some maybe tactical ways or easy ways to get started for somebody who's not really used to broadcasting themselves like is it newsletters is it maybe meetings or i mean speaking up in meetings or what do you think i think it's it's a little bit all of the above and i think it needs to be a little bit situational based on the type of information you're sharing and who you're sharing it with you know newsletters at one point might have been very effective i feel like today i mean i can only speak for uber but it's probably true at most other big companies at this point there's just such a proliferation of newsletters and emails that <laughs> the vast majority of them go unread so i i went over index on that and i actually think that a short concise email that looks personally written with bullet points is more likely to get read than a fancy email with lots of formatting around it so i think uh concise and authentic is is probably a better way to share things electronically at, at, at this stage i think you can also though just make sure that you've got you know in your weekly one on one with your manager that you're coming in prepared that you've got a list of hey here's three things that you know I wanted to update you on that went really well here's three things that could really use some help for your your guidance on and you know there's I, you know I think ways to uh, do things like that 
But then I'd also look out for some of the opportunities on the larger stage, whether that's at a, a company all hands or staff meeting or other things where if you come up with something that you think is important, relevant for a broader audience that you're kind of suggesting that that would be a good thing to present and share. The reality of, for me at least, for our all hands and operating reviews is sometimes it's like hard to find enough content that I want to feature. And so if someone's proactively bringing me something that's cool and it's going to you know, showcase my function in good light, like I'm very appreciative of that. Wow, okay. You might actually be doing your manager a favor by suggesting ideas that you can you can feature in some of these forums. Wow, that is a really good tip. <laughs> I mean, so people shouldn't feel like they're dumping content on something that's already full and then, you know, making life difficult. It's actually the other way around, which is it's hard to find things to showcase every month or whenever these all hands happen. And if somebody is bringing a story, you're actually happy about that. Yeah, I mean, generally, yes. You know, there's times when, you know, there's no more slots that were full. And I think you need to be self-aware enough to take no for an answer, even if it's not a direct no. That if you need to know when you're not, when you're getting a polite no and not push it, but there's still no harm in at least, at least servicing it. Right. Troy, what about situations where a person, somebody who's not directly reporting to you, is maybe two, three levels down, has the opportunity to meet with you for whatever reason, either to present some work they've done or because it's one of those things where managers are trying to get people more visibility and so on. How should they present themselves? What would you expect them to be able to do in that session in order to stand out in your mind as you know somebody with potential? Yeah, well, I mean, so it'd be a rare day where that doesn't happen, right? So like my day is kind of meeting to meeting, usually being presented to and to my people that are part of the working team and not necessarily direct reports. So it's certainly a, a, a common thing. I would say my advice for people in that situation is uh, really know your stuff. So these are important, like someone two or three levels sharing something to me is like me presenting something to Dara, you know, our, our CEO. So I'm not going to wing it, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do the work. I'm going to be ready. I'm going to practice. I'm going to have my talking points. And so, you know, I'd have the same suggestion for anyone that's sharing that. It's like, these are important grand building moments for you. You're only get a few of these opportunities per year, probably. And so it's just worth putting in the effort to really feel prepared. You know, I always go through it. I like, I try to anticipate, okay, what are all the questions that I can get asked and do I have the answers ready? I might do a practice presentation and make sure that like it, it feels structured right. So I, I would definitely do the work. Second is encourage people to come in confident. You know, you can kind of sense confidence or lack of confidence. And when someone presents in a confident way, I think you'll get better engagement. You'll get more receptivity because coming in, you know, appearing unconfident just kind of starts to send off some yellow flags or, oh, I better kick the tires pretty hard on this one. Are we sure this is right? So, Make sure that and it kind of ties to the first thing, you know, practice enough so that you're legitimately confident so that when you come in, you can you can appear confident. I think it's important to listen. And the ideal scenario is not that you you speed talk for 20 minutes and then move on, but that rather you present in a way that invites conversation. So if, if someone's presenting something to me, it's probably not. And it's literally just them talking for 20 minutes. You're probably just going to send me the deck and I could have read it. If it's kind of me, it's probably because you feel like, okay, we need we need some input or we want to get your feedback or we want to kind of collaborate on how to think through this. So make sure that in your presentation style, you're creating those dialogues. That's gotten really hard the last couple of years with everything over Zoom. It's a lot harder to read the body language, especially whatever one's in a tiny little box. And so I'm seeing a greater incidence of people just wanting to plow through. And it's a little bit easier when we're in a meeting room, in a live conference room to kind of sense when someone else wants to talk. 
So you have to be even more in tune to that, I think, in a Zoom format. Yeah, that's you know what I mean. I mean suggestions. Yeah, and I think the key point you're making is come in prepared, know your stuff, and if you practice it, you will come in more confident, which will also make it more likely that you'll have smooth sailing versus somebody feeling like they need to ask questions to make sure that this is real and not just something that they're winging. So I think this is good advice. You mentioned something about managing your brand. So maybe we could discuss that a little bit more. So we've talked about perceptions, but perceptions are, you know, in the moment, that particular meeting, that particular presentation. How do you build an overall brand? And is it really important or I assume not everybody has a personal brand. So does that actually help in any way? Yeah, I think building your brand is super important. And I don't mean I don't mean to suggest that your brand needs to be like distinctive or creative or unique. It's just more and maybe a better way to maybe a better word the brand would be reputation. That every encounter you're having is affecting your reputation. And this you know, these things aren't built overnight. It's usually an accumulation of, of interactions or experiences, but I would assume people are always paying attention that you want to be thoughtful about are you representing yourself in a way that you want people to think about you and are you treating people in a way that is you know developing you know kind of your reputation or your brand as a as a manager or a colleague is, is really important and i think for those high profile meetings when you're presenting to someone very senior where you might only get a few opportunities a year you know a lot of times that's going to be their only impression of you and so that's why i do think it's worth spending that extra time on preparation and really coming in you know confident that you're going to represent yourself well because I, I do think those brand things matter and you know there's i forgot the classic idiom that you know it takes uh years and years to build your brand and, and minutes to destroy it and and so you know sometimes you know taking a shortcut or doing something that you don't feel comfortable doing or that you know isn't the right thing to do might, might feel expedient in the moment it can be super devastating. Right. I think maybe one way of doing this is to be authentic because I think when people hear the word brand or build your brand, they want to emulate somebody who maybe they admire or somebody who's already got a brand of their own. And then you try to be that person. And it's going to be hard to keep up that kind of a facade and keep it going for every interaction, every discussion. But if you're true to yourself, which is I think what you said towards the end, then it makes it easier as long as what you are is authentic, honest, and you're trying to do the right thing, and that comes across. I think it'd be very hard to build a, a disingenuous or non-accurate brand of yourself for an extended period of time. So I definitely agree it needs to be anchored in authenticity. Right. I'd also read in one of your articles something about the three kisses of death for for your brand. Do you have? Uh, do you remember what that was, and what are these kisses? Uh, yeah, I remember writing about that. So I guess some of the ones that the three that I see that can really you know, be long-term harmful for for your career is being uh, disingenuous. So I think people can pick up on when you're just really not being forthright, or you're you're shading the truth, or you just anything that kind of kind of damage damage trust. I think another one is entitlement, and this one might be more of a personal pet peeve, but like I just don't like being around people that have an air of entitlement or you know, undeserved expectations. I think that's important. And I think that the way you treating people poorly is a tough one to get past. And especially people that are junior to you or you know, lower down in the organization, that when you see people treating other people badly, it's hard to recover from that, even if, even if it was just a bad day. Got it. And you're right. I mean, because any one of those kinds of things 
immediately makes the other person feel like you know there's something something fundamentally wrong over yeah. here so it doesn't matter what else you may be doing so you know we've talked about how you might perceive people and we talked about impact perceptions and building a brand now you've written a lot about your own career journey and how you got to where you are and you called it a career hacks essentially so i know one of those was about learning from failure so have you had moments where you know you've not done as well as you thought and what were your really your takeaways from that like what did you learn from that whole process and how should people approach failure yeah i think failure is a common part of life and a common part of career and it's it's nobody bats a, a thousand percent and one of the things I, I like to do in my free time is refer to my writings is I have a blog called Coach's Corner and it's kind of based on my experience coaching my kids baseball teams and soccer teams and things growing up and when I think about when, when you win a game you celebrate and you're excited and you go out for pizza and uh, have a great time and you move on but you don't really learn anything from it because you're in the moment celebrating the win it's the losses that you really learn from because when you lose it's painful and you don't go out and celebrate and you have time to kind of reflect and look at the game film and analyze what went wrong and what can I do better next time so i think those losses are by far the the biggest learning opportunities you know you're going to lose a lot in business like these are competitive markets we're a competitive company we've got functions we work in are are, are super complex and things don't always go well and so taking the time to to diagnose and and learn from from those failures is super important the vast majority of failures are very survivable so i think people get a little over concerned that oh my god like it's going to go well or this metric's a little down this month i'm going to lose my job that's not usually how it works it's how you handle it matters a lot if you can explain what went wrong and what you're going to do next time you can actually turn that failure into a, a brand building opportunity with your with your manager and your team and there's a certain amount of resilience that i look for in people too if you're going to be like broken over the first loss like you're probably just not going to be a good fit in a company like Uber where there's going to be lots lots of W's but lots of L's and so you know not only will be able to learn from the L from the losses but being resilient to roll with the punches a little bit and make sure that you you know get up dust yourself off and get ready for the next pitch right i really like the point which you said that even a failure and how you react to it is a brand building opportunity not everybody is able to react well to failure and actually turn it around or at least handle themselves well in that process. So Troy, do you have any other tips that you'd like to share with our audience, many of whom may be early in their career or uh, perhaps trying to figure out how to get to the next stage in life? I think like if I were to give, you know, a few pieces of advice to people that are kind of earlier middle stage of their career and thinking about like how do I build a reputation and brand that I want and the relationships that I want. One would be find ways to be useful to your boss. And I mean that like beyond the context of your own specific job, which is a given you've got to be good at, but find things that she needs help with that you're good at and raise your hand and uh, you know, offer to take more on. Or find something that's just not getting done on your team and, and, and raise your hand and volunteer to do it. And I find that like, not only is that a great way to have an impact, but it gets noticed and it's very appreciative. I think the same thing kind of applies to peer leadership. So, you know, you want to be the person on the team that your teammates view as kind of a mentor and a go-to person and a peer leader. And then when your boss leaves, and the most common promotion path is you get promoted into your boss's job when when he or she leaves, then the team kind of looks at you as like, well, yeah, of course, uh, Sally is the one who would who would move into that position. She's been kind of doing the job already. 
and the team would also be really excited about about her uh, being in that position. When someone leaves, when, when one of my direct reports leaves for a new role and I've got to make the decision around, okay, do I promote someone up from the team or look external or, or elsewhere? One of the key things I'll, I'll think about is if I choose this person on the existing team, how's the rest of the team going to feel about it? And if I feel like, oh, well, they're going to view this as kind of a demotion or like they're reporting to a peer or that it's not fair, I'm much less likely to go that route. Where there's other times where I'll dig in and what I'll see is actually like the team's going to be ecstatic if I choose this person because they're really nervous about someone outside coming in and they think Sally's awesome and they already feel like she's the team leader. And so that, you know, I think that really sets her up well for that role. So find ways to be a, a team leader. And then third, and this is my, my least popular bit of advice, probably when I'm, when I'm talking to millennials or, or younger <laughs> folks that, from a different generation is like hard work matters a lot. And it's not that I'm saying you shouldn't have some work-life balance or that your whole life should be, you know, 24 seven in the office. But I think it's become like fashionable to say that hard work doesn't matter and that putting in the hours doesn't matter. And it really does especially early in your career. So find those times and those career phases where, you know, kind of putting in the putting in the blood, sweat and tears is going to make a difference and make sure you're doing it because that's when you're going to learn the most and grow the most and establish that brand. Make sure you don't burn yourself out. I look at kind of my career, there's been periods where it's felt like super, super hard. And then other times when it's like, okay, now I'm in a situation where I can, I can cut back a little bit, but you got to be kind of strategic and thoughtful about that. The reality is if you, if you take two equally talented people, and with everything else being equal, if one of them is putting in 50 hours a week and the other is putting in 35 hours a week, the one that's putting in 50 hours a week is just going to get more done. I got to be a little careful how I share this advice because I know it rubs some people the wrong way, but the world is what the world is and effort does matter. It matters in sports too. You know, like just to a certain extent, you know, natural talent is great and athletes are born, not made. But when you talk to the Michael Jordans or the Jerry Rices or the Tom Brady's, these are the folks that are not only more talented than everybody else, but they're working harder than everybody else too. It's not a good long-term strategy, but like there's times in your career where... When it matters, you have to put in the... Yeah, that's right. What advice would you have for people trying to make a break into a bigger role or a different kind of role? And how should they go about it? I wouldn't be afraid to at least express an interest and at least at least go for it. Uh, job search, whether it's external or, or internal, it's, it's kind of a numbers game. You know, you're going to apply for 100 jobs for every 10 interviews you're going to get. You're going to interview 10 times for every offer that you get. Like, it's just a numbers game. It's a big world and there's a lot of factors that go into it. And so if, if you're not even giving yourself a chance, you're not going to get those. You don't have much of a chance to get the opportunity if you don't at least uh, uh, take that chance. So I wouldn't be bashful about it. I'd go into it also realizing there's a certain amount of luck. You know, maybe you're not quite the most qualified person, but you just really hit it off with the hiring manager and you really connect on something or you share your perspective on how you approach the job and it really resonates. And that becomes more important than, well, this person has an MBA, this person doesn't, or this person has eight years of experience and this person only has six. You know, there's a lot of intangibles that go into hiring decisions. So at least you can put yourself in the uh, on the field. You wanna be a little bit careful that you're not applying to absolutely every job that comes up where you just come across as either a little bit clueless or a little bit disingenuous or just trying to constantly buck for a promotion. So don't overdo it. I see a lot more examples of people not going for stuff than I do of people overgoing for stuff. So Troy, thank you so much. I mean, this has all been extremely valuable. If I might just take a minute to summarize some of the points that you mentioned. I think the first point was around having impact. And that means owning a metric. Later on, you mentioned about putting in the hours, but essentially 
own a metric demonstrate that impact the second one was around managing perceptions so how you do something not just what you do be good at meetings come prepared make sure you don't screw up the few opportunities that you have to meet leadership build a brand be a little bit strategic around this and avoid doing negative things that will impact the brand like you said it takes a long time to build it takes no time to destroy it the fourth point was about surviving most things uh, so essentially even if you fail it's not the end of the world and how you react to that failure actually can be you know perception or brand enhancing point another one that you mentioned is kind of going beyond yourself being useful to your boss helping out other people and doing it in a way that you almost become the natural successor to your boss or to somebody else you know when the time comes because you've almost like positioned yourself as the bench for that individual and you do that by just doing a wide set of things and being helpful and the last point was not to be afraid to apply for things i'm without overdoing it and being completely off base but have a sense of what you want to try and achieve and then kind of go for that even if you aren't exactly 100% qualified for it so thank you very much troy these were all excellent uh, insights i've learned actually a lot from this as well as to how i could have conducted myself in the past and how i should conduct myself in future so really once again i really appreciate having you here with us and for everyone listening thank you so much for tuning in you'll find the show notes at crazytalk.online and also please give us a five star rating we'll be very grateful and do remember to follow us subscribe and keep uh, joining us for future episodes so thanks once again troy for joining us we were troy and amit with job talk see you next time